Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel and I am the editor of the TLS. We're still in unsplendid isolation. I'm no longer sitting at my wife's makeup table as my bedroom door came off its hinges last night. So I have no <laughs> bedroom door. I know it's truth here. Yeah. What, it's but, just in the middle of the night? No, actually, it was, it was actually just before the... It was like nine o'clock at night, so we were up and <laughs> it, it fell off its hinges onto the ground, making a massive clatter. Uh, and so we've now have, and also to fix it, I am not handy as you might imagine, Thea. And, <laughs> and so to fix it, I think we need to put a new frame in the door and there's oh, no way yeah. that this ain't going to happen till, till the end of lockdown. So I no longer have a door in my bedroom. So I'm now camped out in the living room. Thea, where are you in the same place as normal? Um, I am, yes, I'm, I'm sitting on the floor and using the sofa as a desk at the moment. <laughs> Yeah. Do you know what? I, I, I was talking to my wife last night saying, I don't, we don't have an office or a place to work in. So I'm always just sort of sitting in weird places. Or squatting in strange yeah. places. Yeah, exactly. yeah, exactly. And I do Sky once a week and I have to have a, a and it's awful because you, you do it on Skype. And at the minute I'm sitting, when I do it, I'm sitting on a sofa with a beanbag on the table with my phone on top of the beanbag. <laughs> It's ridiculous. It's like, oh no, you see all these other people in these sort of chrome offices. And I'm sort of like you say, my thighs start burning because I'm squatting in front of something for an hour. It's <laughs> ridiculous. Ridiculous. Anyway, um, any meals you want to mention? I'm so sick of food. I'm bored of it. Um, so tell me a nice meal that you've had. Um, well, as you know, I was supposed to be in Italy at my grandma's um, uh, for Easter. Yeah. Uh, so that obviously went out the window. Um, so a bunch of us Italians over here, cousins uh, and me, uh, my sister and I, uh, did the great gnocchi challenge, which was um, my non was famous for her gnocchi. So we all we all took it upon ourselves to make gnocchi and film ourselves doing it, um, and then <laughs> put together a, a montage of gnocchi across Britain being made. Oh, lovely. <laughs> and sent it to my to my auntie to show to my grandma. And have uh, you done so it? That's, that's not what you were thinking. <laughs> yeah, 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 we did that. We did and that. How, and how was your gnocchi? 
Um, pretty good actually. Yeah, I mean they have... still weren't they still weren't nonnas, but they were good. They were passable. What, what did you have it with? What's what's uh, just with uh, a ragu? So she does um, two thirds beef to one third pork mince. Um, oh, yeah, very it's no pasta pesto, but I'm sure it's very nice. Um, well, we had that uh, last night. <laughs> oh, did you? Yeah. yeah. Well done. Any sweet corn in it? No? No. Okay. <laughs> now, do you remember a couple of weeks ago, I said that uh, red peppers were for children. You did, my, yeah. So, now, Sarah Atwood. One of the sillier things you've said. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 It's probably not actually even in the top 10. But anyway, Sarah Atwood <laughs> has emailed to say this. You've clearly never had a proper roasted red pepper with a lovely sear on the skin. They're delicious by themselves, added to various dishes or on pizza. That's but that might provoke you. I often roast whole red pepper stuff with farro, feta, red onion, kale, and herbs. Give the red pepper a chance. It's not a nursery veg. Oh, do you agree go. with that? Thing? Yeah, I do. Yeah, it's nice to have someone else point out um... how crass I am. <laughs> <laughs> Um, uh, we do like people getting in touch there, don't we? Uh, please do share your lockdown rediscoveries, bizarre meals. Uh, you can tweet us uh, or email me at stig.able at the-tls.co.uk. We're very pleased to hear what you're eating, reading, uh, thinking or doing. Carol Lambert emailed us and she's from Alaska and she is currently eating, are you ready, Thea? Wild salmon and rhubarb muffins. Hmm. We froze salmon and rhubarb last summer. I'll be fine while they last. I don't know if she's eating at the same time. Well, it sounds like she is. Do you know what? Yeah. I could be persuaded. I mean, I, I can see that that might work. I mean, the, salmon sharpness. and lemon. Yeah, yeah, the sharpness. I can see that that might be quite nice. I, I, I've had mackerel with apple before. Yeah. all right. Yeah. Okay. And actually, Carol also recommends a book, uh, which is To Say Nothing of the Dog. It's a great title. Or How We Found the Bishop's Bird Stump at Last by Connie Willis. <laughs> It's a send-up of British sleuth novels. I'm going to go and buy it now. It's amazing. It also sounds like some kind of sequel to the uh, Ellen Crowell blind passing <laughs> yeah. story yeah. from last week's episode. Yeah. <laughs> uh, a couple of others. Uh, M. Thayer sent us a picture of goldfinches, the state bird of New Jersey, inspired by last week's birdwatching chat. And Stephen Case is in Illinois, and he's provided a picture of Kipling his beautiful dog. So we've had Beckett and Kipling in consecutive weeks. Can anyone out there beat those names for literary animals? Let us know. Literary pets, doesn't have to be dogs. Uh, just get in touch with us and we will read out the most interesting things that people are up to. Surely someone has a dog called Godo that just has really bad recall. <laughs> yeah, Godo, Godo. <laughs> and if they don't, Thea, they I feel do. you're, you're going to have to rename Alf. <laughs> But yeah, I'd like to hear some literary dogs. That'd be great if there was a whole... Uh, I'm always struck by Byron's dog was called Boatswain. Yeah. That's a great name for a dog. Anyway, uh, enough of that. Uh, here's where I help people subscribe cheaply to the TLS. You can use this special offer code, the-tls.co.uk forward slash podcast offer. This is the best price anywhere on the internet. Five issues for £5 or $5. Coming up this week, there is only one writer we devote a special edition to every year, and that is, of course, the greatest writer in the English language, William Shakespeare. Michael Keynes is our resident Shakespearean, and he'll tell us what we've got this week. And we may even slag off some people who think Shakespeare didn't write Shakespeare. Plus, we ponder this question. Why do women read more than men? 80% of fiction sales are to women, apparently. A staggering number. Lucy Scholes has written the lead piece this week and we'll have some answers.
Now, I've been thinking a lot about Shakespeare recently and thinking with him too as a companion to isolation. He is, of course, without peer, putting our thoughts into beautiful words. We might recall Hamlet, who could be bounded in a nutshell and count myself a king of infinite space were it not that I have bad dreams. Or Richard II, who, like Hamlet, has been studying how I may compare this prison where I live unto the world. How many of us now find that time is broke, that I have wasted time and now doth time waste me? Uh, so what Shakespearean matter are we being discussing in the TLS this week? Well, Emma Smith considers how the very issue of mortality has been misunderstood in regard to Shakespeare's work, as death in Shakespeare is often encountered as gruesomely bodily and darkly comic, rather than as meaningful or sublime, more hammer than hamartia. Meanwhile, Roger Lewis discusses the idea of Shakespeare's ongoing relevance on another continent, holding up a mirror as he does to the socio-political dynamics of American history. Is Donald Trump an allowed fool or bloody tyrant in all of this, we might wonder? And how much did Shakespeare really write Shakespeare? Brian Vickers weighs in once more on those who want to redefine the canon. To talk us through all this and more is the Doctor himself, back for his second week in a row and on holiday... Somewhere exotic, no doubt. Michael Keynes. Michael, hello. Hello. Hello again. <laughs> hello again. Is there, can we get you on next week? Can we go for three in a row? <laughs> Any excuse. I'll be back. Yeah. Uh, we do do... Uh, you, a year ago, you'd have been on this podcast. We'd have been talking about Shakespeare. We do one of these issues every year. I bet you must have superintended tens of Shakespeare issues in your time at the TLS, Michael. Is it inexhaustible? Are there always new things to say about him and his work, do you think? It certainly feels that way to me, and I guess I guess we'll never know. That's how it seems to me. Is that it's and actually that it's because it's not it's not him in a way. It's it's us. These TLS um, Shakespeare specials do go back at least the past couple of decades, and of course, if you look through the archives of the paper, you see there's been this ongoing discussion throughout the 20th century about every aspect of Shakespeare, what what he actually wrote, uh, how he's inspired other artists, where he got his ideas from, how they relate to his time and ours. So that discussion is it's almost self-perpetuating and it ends up um, accruing in another sense in that people are, of course, arguing with their predecessors. The argument can never be finished. It can never be over. So it feels to me like it might as well be inexhaustible. Is he, is he alone in this, I wonder? Because um, is it something particularly inherent in his work that allows this everlasting debate and ever, ever ongoing relevance, do you think? I think there is something about him that's particularly... He ticks all the boxes in, in that there is, there's so much work. It's gorgeous in so many ways. It's it's mysterious. He himself is, to an extent, mysterious. In other ways, we know a lot about him and the kind of person he was, the kind of business dealings he had, for example. So he's a tantalising mixture. And I think you could probably say that things come and go in the 18th century People thought the sonnet was a pretty vile and disgusting form. And then they twigged it might it wasn't probably entirely about, say, heterosexual love. And then they were even more outraged, <laughs> or some of them were. So that's kind of that was kind of out and now it's in. Um to use a phrase um and that sort of thing is changing all the time i think we can see that now in relation to uh the states and plays the political plays coming back in in a certain way too uh, we'll come to that in a minute did i ever tell you the story i was on radio four once and i was writing a, a script and i said shakespeare the greatest playwright in the english language and the producer tapped me on the shoulder and went you have to say arguably and I said, I'm not, I said, I'm not saying arguably, because Shakespeare is the greatest player in the English language. And he went, no, no, you've got to say arguably. I said, okay, name one playwright in the English language better than Shakespeare. And there was this pause. 
Um, she lo- very clever, very lovely woman, but she went, Alan Bennett? <laughs> Alan Bennett. He's not even the best. He's not even the best playwright called Alan in the English language. No, I mean, I <laughs> no, I'm looking forward to the TLS Alan Bennett annual special. Yeah. It's likely, doesn't it? Uh, so anyway, so, so I, I mean, I agree, and, and I, I, I do think there is something kind of specifically inexhaustible um, about it. Before we talk about what's going on in the paper, I want to ask you: um, Are you reading Shakespeare in isolation uh, in lockdown at all? What's the best play do you think to read in that respect? Oh, you know, I would choose something sort of inexhaustible and fascinating. There are plays, I also, there are plays I try to force myself to read. I'm not particularly keen on uh, The Merchant of Venice. I, I studied it at yeah, school, it never really it, yeah. appealed to me. And so I no. wonder whether I should force myself to look again at something like that. Um, but I'd probably take, by choice, something inexhaustible and vast. I'd, I'd, I'd take Lear. You'd take Lear? See, I, I'd take Hamlet because I do think... There is that line about um, about um, being bounded by a, a nutshell. But also, I think Hamlet is 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 even more than Lear. See, I I respect Lear without loving it, whereas for some reason I've always I've always loved Lear. I've always loved Hamlet. Um, oh, that makes it. I mean, Hamlet is is extraordinary in itself, and the Hamlet versus Lear—that's the classic uh, classic old argument, isn't it? But there are others, now, plenty of others. Now, Thea, have you seen this meme about quarantine houses on social media? Uh, I haven't seen. A Shakespeare one. I've seen no. many, many have others. Seen many others. Michael, have you seen oh, this yeah. meme? Do you I've know, seen it going around. Yeah. Would I like to be stuck in a house with Virginia Woolf for, I don't know. Exactly. Or Count exactly. Olaf. Yeah. <laughs> so I thought, I thought without doing a whole one, uh, name a couple of Shakespearean characters, both of you, who you would be happy to be in quarantine with. Who would be in your Shakespearean character quarantine house? Oh, um... Shall I go? Shall I go? Shall I throw one out there? I want to go. I'm going to say I've got two. Coriolanus, although I think that would be a bit risk reward because I think because <laughs> I think uh, I think he'd be very good at sort of keeping things together, but he mm. might go mad and be annoying. Uh, and the other one I thought would be genuinely good is Lu- Lucio. I mean, is it pronounced Lucio? Measure for measure. Oh, the that's sort of. One. Because wow. he's fu- he's funny, he drinks a lot, and he he seems like quite. A, he, he, I think he's the funniest Shakespeare character. Lucio is pronounced. For a reason, yeah. could you say for that reason? Could you say bottom as well? Just because you know you'd need a bit of light relief. He if you too- <laughs> I think he might be too and dense. You could sort of tickle his ears for a bit of comfort. <laughs> oh, this is bottom. <laughs> you're going you're going for bottom with ass's ears in place. That's a, that's yeah a yeah yeah. Movie. I think so. I think that's what I I'm think- going to go for. In that sense, aren't, aren't there quite a few that they, on the face of it, they would be great fun, but eventually they'd start annoying you. Bottom is a good example, I think. All those things where he <laughs> takes over and starts doing everything, let me be the line too. And and Falstaff, for the same reason, you think, what yeah. fun. He keeps telling you about this great guy he knows who's a prince and, and trying to borrow all your money. And, you know, it's drinking not really all the time. Booze. Yeah, drinking all your booze. Exactly. Where did that go? So I don't know who I, t- for the same reason, I was thinking, you know, you'd want to have, um, dinner with Antony or Cleopatra maybe both but eventually it would get just too annoying having to listen yeah. to their vainglorious stories about the past <laughs> I think Lady Macbeth would also be fun to have to, like a week in well, she's, isolation she's very, she's very of the time with all the hand washing yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah that's, very, that's very true well let's go and also you'd have to be on your toes a bit around her which I think you'd probably it keeps you agile uh, <laughs> <laughs> Lady Macbeth. She never, you'd never quite know what what she was, what she was scheming. This I is terrifying. One, but... This is a house I don't want to be stuck in. This is completely yeah. terrifying. 
Yeah, we could. Yeah, there's probably a Shakespeare. I mean, a Shakespeare and Baddie House would be. Imagine Iago, Aaron the Moor from Titus Andronicus. Um, I'm trying to think who, who who are the other Macbeth sort of forming alliances and working together. Yeah, that's yeah. the terrifying thought. Look, someone must. We need to do a TLS version of this this meme. Um, um, but I feel like there could be a board game in it. <laughs> Well, funnily, actually, this is kind of relevant, Michael, to what we're talking about, because I'll tell you why. One of the first pieces you've got in the Shakespeare issue is Emma Smith reviewing two books about Shakespeare's treatment of death. And one of the points she makes is that, you know, in Titus Andronicus, there's like a tea towel of all the gruesome ways that people die in Titus Andronicus. Oh, sure. And oh, well, about how people die in Shakespeare in general. Uh, I think. Shakespeare yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And, and there's an argument, isn't there, that, that Shakespeare is treated as being a bit glib on the subject of death. And, and I suppose the argument for the piece is that actually he's more serious than that, all that. Yeah, I mean, well, Emma Smith is writing, I think she she does this magnificently, about two completely different approaches to the combined subject of death and Shakespeare. On the one hand, there's an approach in a book called Death by Shakespeare. I love the subtitle of this book. It's something, I think it's Snake Bites, Stabbings and Broken Hearts. Yeah. It's by Catherine Harkup. And the idea, the idea is that's quite, it's quite a, in a way, a usefully literal-minded book. It's like that, how many children... Uh, you know, does Lady Macbeth have kind of type argument? It's asking, what snake was it exactly that Cleopatra clasps to her bosom? Could it be um, the Egyptian cobra, as her example? And on the other hand, there's a book by Andrew Griffin called Untimely Deaths in Renaissance Drama. So it's Shakespeare and his contemporaries. Um, and that's more about um, historiographical ideas. So it's not about knowing whether Henry V died gloriously in battle or died of dysentery. It's about what fits the story that somebody wants to tell at a particular moment so in the case of say um richard ii in in the classic idea of tragedy the idea would be that yes there's there's a, a flaw in his character there's a failing and that's what leads to his downfall but actually you, you can question that and read the play in several different ways and ask whether that is in fact the the reason the play is written the way it is is to is to make you question that or to make you consider that there are different ways to tell the story of a life so it's a, to me it's it's a profoundly interesting thing about how you combine these two subjects how you can use shakespeare to think about death and, and vice versa is the aim also in a sense to sort of rehumanize the drama of it because so many of these deaths are so foreign to us and have become increasingly so um down the decades, over the, you know, down the centuries. The thing is, is it, it's odd to think that in the theatre, one of the most common reactions is, is sort of laughter. There can be a death which is ridiculous, and in plays by Shakespeare's contemporaries, they're often even more outrageous. Um, there's the there's the villain who lets an axe fall on his own head, boom, and and that's it. He's gone. Uh, so there are interesting moments like that in Shakespeare. But I also guess I'm I'm constantly surprised by my reaction when I go to the theatre, if I ever could go to the theatre again, when you see something that, that gives you an unexpected kind of response, um, a, a death that seems ridiculous or something that's unexpectedly moving. Um, shall we talk about America quickly? Um, because sure. there's a great piece by Roger Lewis has looked at a couple of books that say that Shakespeare kind of, Shakespeare's helped America view itself really the way it shapes sort of thinking america's thinking of itself you know the anti-tyranny plays like julius caesar um being a case in point uh, is there an argument here that you want to get on board with yeah i i think it's become 
increasingly evident. It's, beca- it's become a, a good new critical subject, the sort of history, the interwoven history of Shakespeare in America. Uh, there was a great piece by Barbara Moat a few years back in which she argued that Shakespeare is woven into the very fabric of America. And you can see it in the Constitution, that Shakespeare means something to the founding fathers. Um, John Quincy Adams has some very interesting, sometimes dodgy things to say in relation to Shakespeare. For example, he talks about Othello and Desdemona in relation to to, to race um, and mixed sort of marriages, as it were. Um, uh, it's, it's so odd that. Uh, Thomas Jefferson is another great admirer. So it does go right back there. Um, one of the books that Roderick Lewis writes about is by James Shapiro, who's already edited a fantastic anthology about Shakespeare in America. Uh, it's, it's well worth finding because it's got for things like um, Mark Twain reporting Julius Caesar's murder as if you were a local news reporter. What would an American local news reporter say about this great event? And it's written in kind of journalese of the time. Um, but you can see that people are pastiching Coriolanus and then drawing on things, uh, you know, throughout the, the you know the past century, two centuries, um, up to the present day, and a theatre production that um, James Shapiro was involved in it in 2017, the the quite sort of um, controversial Delacorte theatre production in New York, uh, directed by I think it was Oscar Eustace, um, in which Julius Caesar is presented as a Trump-like figure. Uh, now, obviously, people go round the houses about this they come up with other plays that they feel um tell us about what well, i think um what one of the other books under review calls the formal formal aspects you know of uh, what's going on in the states at the moment um i'm not entirely convinced about that it seems to me that if anything to compare trump to julius caesar is a kind of insult to julius caesar um (laughs) so i find it a very weird idea but i could see it's part of maybe an ongoing commentary you know that shakespeare that shakespeare allows america to comment on itself in some way does that does that sound fair well it goes back to the the, um, maybe this is a good point to leave actually michael because it goes back to the initial point that we made the inexhaustibility of shakespeare doesn't it because um one of the triumphs of shakespeare is that you have this absurd phenomenon that is donald trump absurd in so many ways and i was watching his press conference last night and you know the fact that you can then use shakespeare as a, a way of judging trump really is a great testament to shakespeare not to trump exactly yeah that was a zinger last night wasn't it it was an absolute classic i'm looking forward to future plays based on this period alone <laughs> shall we leave it there then well I, 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 i'm gonna have to go and try and work out my quarantine house because I, I i think should we challenge the so people can send them in if they want to the the current the five shakespearean characters you'd most like to be locked down with <laughs> and we've come i think we've come with more or less five. and why and why and and why, particularly if it's slightly sociopathic, as <laughs> as well, we going for the by, worst house here or the best house to be. I think it's a thin line in. between the two. There was another yeah. messy one. I saw, I saw one with with Hunter S. Thompson in it, and he was with Oscar Wilde, I think, in the sort of that strange. Was, oh, I mean, wow. that would be fun but exhausting. Yeah, yeah. I'd also like right. a, like a house of the characters who don't have names, like um, the gardener in Richard II. I think this is a one scene character. There's a gardener in Richard II, and he just tells the queen how it is. She's basically saying, "How dare you say? How dare you say my husband is is going down? How dare you say he's going to be deposed?" And the gardener is very <laughs> polite and nice and clever chap. Just kind of says, "No, I'm sorry, I'm just saying what everyone knows." So your your <laughs> niche talk. There you go, the, the gardener. Yeah, yeah, the nameless, the bear. We can have the bear from Winter's Tale. Yeah, there we go. The bear, the gardener. If they, people can come up with a few more, I'd love that. <laughs>
Yeah. <laughs> well, don't say we don't. Uh, God knows what we're up to, really. Uh, I think it's a good idea. I think, the Shakespeare, I think the Shakespeare quarantine house might work. Michael Keynes, you've come from your exotic holiday in your own house to do this. Uh, thank you very much indeed. My pleasure. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Before we go on, a message from Harvard University Press. Many of us will have been watching a lot of Disney in the last couple of weeks, to say the very least. And that may be the source of our expertise on the tale of Snow White. But in the fairest of them all, released this month by HUP, acclaimed folklorist Maria Tartar reveals dazzling variations from across the globe, taking us from Armenia to Switzerland to the US. The Brothers Grimm gave this story the name by which we know it best. And in 1937, Walt Disney sweetened their somber version to make the first feature-length animated fairy tale, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Since then, the Disney film has become our cultural touchstone, the innocent heroine, her evil stepmother, the envy that divides them, and a romantic rescue from domestic drudgery and maternal persecution. But as every fan of the story knows, there's more to Snow White than all of that. And this book shows it. Marina Warner describes it as an exciting and authoritative anthology from the wisest good fairy in the world of the fairy tale. Get your copy online now. It is a truth universally acknowledged that women read more fiction than men, writes Lucy Scholes in this week's TLS, citing the fact that in the UK, the US and Canada, for example, 
women account for 80% of fiction sales in all media, including audiobooks. Audiences at literary festivals skew heavily female Tushi ads, and women are also disproportionately members of libraries and book clubs, as well as attendees of literary workshops. Lucy Scholes is reviewing a book by Helen Taylor with the confidently once and for all title, Why Women Read Fiction. <laughs> on the line to tell us whether the book delivers on this promise and to advance a few theories of her own, no doubt, is Lucy Scholes. Hello, Lucy. Hi. Before we get into the whys and why nots of all this, it's probably worth setting out what's at stake here. I mean, why why do you think the question implied in Helen Taylor's title is is an important one? Well, she one of the first examples she uses in the book is that apparently Ian McEwan once said that when women stop reading, the novel will be dead. So her sort of uh, point of her starting point really is this idea that the industry, the books industry as a whole, particularly fiction, rests on the shoulders of women readers, um, and therefore she wants to kind of try and probe a little bit, kind of beneath the surface, and find out what this fiction reading means to women. And I think she's coming from two points of view here both herself as a kind of a long-term reader and somebody who's found a lot of I don't know, meaning um, and sort of support in her life through fiction. And then also she wants to know if this extends to the, the other women in her life that she's met and whether they've got the same sort of um, relationship with fiction that she has. And you point out as well, I mean, more broadly, stepping beyond the, the gender thing as well about how reading fiction can improve empathy, all of these arguments we hear, you know, again, brain function and our relationships with other people. You cite mm. um, a study of, of reading fiction and dementia uh, from Lancaster Medical School. There's lots of sort of examples examples of this in here. I, there was one in particular um, that I think reading uh, crime fiction, for example, uh, manages to help people who are in therapy and things like that, that you wouldn't necessarily think, you know. Um, so I, those sort of elements of the book I found really fascinating. But the, gen- the, ge- the gendered point uh, is the, is the centre of the book. Has it, does she, does she yeah. make the case that it's, it's been ever thus? So I was thinking of you know, 18th century novels, the idea that they were not only written often by women, but they were read Often by women, you know, we we had a thing on Charlotte Lennox writing the female uh, quicksote in in sort of seventeen fifty nine, and there was that tradition, wasn't there, that women were fiction writers and readers, going back almost from the emergence of the novel. Has it been ever thus? Is is that an argument that's made? Oh yes, she definitely takes it back um, and sort of cites lots of examples in the in the past of women being the ones who have always sort of turned to fiction. And I think what she is dealing with, what sort of underlies this, is this a sort of central um, assumption that's often made that fiction is sort of light and frothy and is the what women like to read, whereas men like to read things that are serious and important and are mostly nonfiction. Is that true? I mean, <laughs> how true is this? How, well, how is she buying the, the central claim? Right, are well, we buying this? <laughs> I think this is this is obviously the issue I think with this book there's a lot of fascinating stuff in here but it sort of left me with more questions that I felt needed to be answered. And I'm not sure, I mean, you know, the stats that she gives and that Thea's already mentioned here are impressive in terms of, you know, women reading. It's not just that they buy they buy more fiction, they read more fiction, they are more likely to be members of libraries, they're more likely to be members of book groups, um, they're more likely to be invested in sort of literary tourism, which is something that she talks a lot about here. Um, and so I'm not... Um, disregarding that this might be the case, but I'm very interested in what's going on with that supposed 20% of the market that's being bought by men, because I know plenty of men who really enjoy reading fiction. I know men who don't, but you know, I'm, I'm very interested in these men who are who are reading it, and that's something that's not quite uh, delved into in this book. And it's certainly p- part of the trouble seems to be in the methodology here, um, in terms of how Helen Taylor sets about answering that question. She 
she there's a questionnaire with 39 questions i don't know if that's a john bucken reference or yeah. or what but, but um that the, her respondents we end up with a very specific composite image of woman don't we Yes, yes. And I think, I mean, I suppose with the problem with any kind of book like this is that it's not a, and she doesn't, I must, you know, in her defence, she never claims this to be a kind of scientifically um, carried out study. She doesn't claim to be, um, you know, to have any kind of methodology behind her that is absolute. What she's done is she's approached, as well as having talked to a lot of um, female readers, some of whom, many of whom are also authors themselves throughout her career and in and ready to write this book. She also sent this questionnaire, like you said, with the 39 questions to 500 women she knew who were readers. I think she sent it to some of them and they sent it on to other people. So she's got a sort of huge response, but it's quite, um, I suppose my problem with it would be more that the composite woman that seems to come out in this book is one who sort of treats reading like a guilty pleasure, who snatches times reading fiction between doing the housework at home or looking after children. Um, and obviously there are exceptions to this rule, but overall, as you read the book, this is the kind of general image that comes up. Um, it seems it seems kind of reminiscent of um, Janice Radway's study, um reading the romance women uh, woman patriarchy in popular literature doesn't it but it, it's almost like she hasn't because in that book and that's from 1984 Janice Radway sort of undid that negative view of um yeah of of reading romances or you know reading as escape it wasn't always a negative thing it could be much more complicated and more like a form of protest but that sort of has mm. disappeared in this new book yeah, I think this one doesn't really have the sort of depth. I think what this book has is a lot of anecdotal evidence about women reading, which I'm not necessarily going to argue with it. This is how these particular women read, but it doesn't do anything that really goes that further beneath the surface. It doesn't sort of probe um, the ins and outs of of. I don't know. Well, maybe that's being unfair because she does talk. I mean, she does make a very. Um, she makes an interesting argument about the way in which we women, and I suppose it could be, you know, extrapolated that men too, but people who read fiction are, like we talked about earlier, more like to be empathetic. Women have a particular relationship to fiction. She claims that um, we sort of weave it into our lives in a particular way. We find support from the fiction we read. We find um, a lot of sort of something that sustains us in a very kind of interactive way with our fiction. And those sort of elements of it, I found I, I did find really interesting. But why um, should that be different? I mean, we keep coming back to the same question here, don't we? Because 80% is an extraordinary high number. It's not like 60-40. 80-20 is, yes. is, is staggering. And then, therefore, the, it doesn't seem that she gives enough evidence for why that's the case. Because I read an awful lot of fiction and I read it to escape. <laughs> you know, I read it horizontally in a feminine fashion. I, I like escapist genre novels. I, I, I'm always reading several books at once. You know, I, I probably... I, and that may be feminine reading, but it mm. uh, it just seems to me that, that once you establish 80-20, you'd have to, there needs to be a gotcha here, doesn't there? There needs to be something sort of scientific or something that's, that, 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 that accounts for that. Because on the face of it, it's kind of inexplicable, isn't it? Well, I think this was my sort of my what I said about, you know, having more questions at the end of the book, that, you know, 
that needed answering. That was what I wanted to find out about. I wanted to find out about like how men read fiction because she talks about anecdotal evidence of men not reading fiction in the same way that women do. And yet I feel that there are plenty of men I know who do read like that. And if they don't, then I'm kind of interested in why they don't. I mean, I have, you know, there are men I know who don't read as much fiction as women, um, but I'd love something that was a bit more... Um, something that really probed like why that was then why is it that women can read like this and have these kind of empathetic relationships with fiction that men supposedly can't what about the question of do you think that men read books are more likely to read books by men and women are read more likely to read books by women do you think and if this book gets into this is there a gender divide not only between kind of scale of reading but between with the sort of books that you read men read books by men women more by women um, yeah, this definitely gets into that. I think in certain points, she does make it clear um, on various occasions that women are less likely to um, be picky about whether they read men or women, that they'll happily read novels by men and women alike, whereas men might stick more towards books that have been authored by men. However, at the same time, there is definitely a push in this book um, toward novels that have been written by women. For example, of all the 500 sort of uh, correspondents she speaks to, the favourite novels that come up again and again are Pride and Prejudice and Jane Eyre, apparently. Uh, so there's definitely a sort of a skew towards reading fiction by women. Yeah. Although uh, Pride, of, Pride of Prejudice is one of my favourite novels. I don't know if... And, and- um, you see, you should have been in. This, yeah, yeah. Uh, in the, you should have been one of these correspondents, and it would have skewed the data in an interesting well, yeah, way. I, I'd be happy. I'd be happy to do that. But I, I do think that there's a kind of unconscious thing that when you're growing up as a maybe as a as a boy, wrongly, I'm sure it's wrongly, but but nonetheless, it's there that you read books by men. And I wonder. Mm. And I, I feel you know. I look at my bookshelves now. I'm sitting actually in my room full of books, and I, I there's definitely a preponderance of books by men here. Um, yeah, and I think, and some of the people that she talks to, uh, this is another, I suppose, one of the other things I wanted, I was quite interested in in finding out how old many of her correspondents yeah. were, because some of them seem to come up with quite, um, say, dated ideas of, I mean, one of them, I think, mentions at some point that, you know, women uh, or girls were brought up to sit and, you know, re- to think about things and men were brought up or boys brought up to do more. Um, and uh, Taylor does describe this particular correspondent as being older but she doesn't give her age um and some of the you know she's not the only one here who just seems like there might be slightly out of date ideas about it about sort of gender imbalance but that's what i was i was having read your piece as well and and thinking about and trying to figure out whether things are changing whether whether the reason Mm. um the gender stereotypes or the, the the genders that are emerging from the book are out of date or whether we're out of touch. I mean, it's interesting because I think some of the, like, for example, some of the anecdotal evidence that she talks about men and women reading differently. She talks about when she wrote one of her earlier books, which was called Scarlet's Women, which was about Gone with the Wind and its female fans. And she'd written that book because she'd been given a copy by her mother, um, that her, her father had sort of inscribed to her mother and it had been passed down to her. And then when she started talking about how much she loved this book, um, when Taylor started talking about this, she realised that a lot of women she knew also had quite a special relationship with the book and she said that she'd spoken to a few men and they might have seen the film but not the book and you know this is exactly the kind of anecdotal evidence I'm sure that backs up her argument but then I started wondering whether well Gone with the Wind is quite a, a sort of I don't know many younger yeah. readers who read that book today let's well, say for it's example. Massive, it's massively racist isn't it? Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> yeah. So I, I think there's, there could be a kind of push towards, um, yes, a, a kind of older. I mean, I could be wrong. I don't know how many of these, um, the people she asked were younger, but they seem like they might be slightly older. Um, but I also think, yeah, there's maybe something to do with a younger generation of readers. I don't know, maybe in their teenage, you know, teenage readers today, are they so interested in reading um, do they really care the gender of the, yeah. of the you know, the novels they're but, reading? But I the don't know. Maybe there's a self-fulfilling prophecy here that if it is a fact that 80% of books are bought by women, then we know that the, the, the book industry is nothing if not unimaginative in how it pursues its quest for a, for, for money. If something works, it would just bang the crap out of that until they, till they, till it stops working. Yes. So there's presumably an argument that whenever this happened or whenever anyone, someone noticed this, that was the point at which 80% of all books were marketed at women. 80% of all marketing spend was directed at women. And then it became, it would have, it would have reinforced itself, wouldn't it? Well, I think this is one of the issues that definitely comes up in the book that, um, and she does go into sort of uh, ideas of marketing. Like, for example, she talks about how Hilary Mantel's books prior to writing, um, you know, the Cromwell trilogy, a lot of her early work was sort of marketed with pastely pink um, covers or, you know, made to look like it was the kind of thing that women should be reading. And while I was writing the piece, I was looking at my own bookshelves. And I think I wrote in the review that, for example, something like I was looking at my all my copies of Penelope Lively's books. And, you know, she's a Booker Prize winner as well as Mantel. And yet, if you look at a lot of her more um, recent uh, books, they're all published with these sort of very, I don't know, sort of Kath kidson like covers. Yeah. I don't know if I'm supposed to say yeah, that, but, yeah. you know, they're kind of, they've got these sort of, you know, sepia toned photos of family and they're all pastel, you know, tones. And so I don't think any man who'd won the Booker Prize would be, would have his books um, marketed like that, even if he was writing about families and, you know, sort of domestic drama. So I think there's definitely something in what you're saying that the, the sort of the marketing world around these women writers is being pushed towards that. I think this is. I I I, I just stri- strikes me that um, it's such an interesting point in this, and I don't want to believe that. But maybe I mean the thing is, if it's a fact, it's a fact, isn't it? If, I mean, people can measure book sales and who's buying them. It's just I feel a bit. Yeah. I feel that my sex may have let the team down here a bit because <laughs> why are we not reading more books? Well, I think that's exactly what I came away wanting to know after this book. I want to know why men aren't reading then. Because if, if as she claims, everything is true, and I do agree with her as someone who's had a long, you know, ongoing relationship with reading fiction as well as writing about it, like, I mean, I believe that it can do great things for you, um, whether it's increasing empathy, making you feel better, you know, all these kind of things. So why don't more men read fiction? There's got to be something about it. And I started to wonder whether it's to do with this kind of feminization of, um, of, of of literature or of fiction at least that men maybe are put off slightly. Well, I mean, it, it must be. I suppose you can't imagine if you if you sat if you can imagine yourself on a train ever again, surrounded by other people <laughs> reading a book. You, you couldn't really imagine a man probably reading a book with uh, you know a cover with the, the kind of the cliched pastely hues and 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 woman looking out the window sort of look to it well exactly so i think there's a lot and i think you know we're not the first people to point out that there's a lot of books that are marketed like that and they do put off male readers because they look so um and also i don't and not just male readers those sort of covers do you know what i've actually written a book about what to read on a on a train 
I spent a year. Oh, see, commuting. I didn't do that just for just for you to plug. Yeah, <laughs> that you. wasn't I, a setup. <laughs> no, and actually, I mean, it, the book's not coming out till November, so it's not even a proper plug. But but I had a, I, I, for a whole year, I read over. A, I did a commute, an hour's commute, and I read a different book. You know, every every couple of weeks. But to me, that was doing no more than I would do anyway. I didn't feel that that was a sort of gendered thing. It just felt like if you've got an hour to spare, why wouldn't you read a book in it? But are you put off by sort of overly feminine covers, for want of a better description? I don't think I, well, do you know what my problem is? I probably I'm put off by contemporaneity. I think is the difficulty that I I, okay. I read a lot of books that are old. Not old, old. Like yep. I'm not saying so. I read everything you know in the 15th century and you know anything like that. But, uh, <laughs> just I just unroll <laughs> my scrolling. <laughs> yeah, uh, but no, I, I find that I've I often read books from like 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 30 years ago or you know 100 years ago. So I wonder whether there's an argument that the the money making fiction is very contemporaneous, very now, and maybe that's just not aimed at me at all, and I just miss it. Because it's never even pointed at me, so I might read an older Hilary Mantel, for example, or you know Annie Proulx or someone like that. But I wouldn't read the latest book that's going to shift. I wouldn't read Eleanor Oliphant's Going Mad or whatever that book's called. The the, 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 right. book, the book that that shifted a million copies. I would yeah. never read that. Not in a snobbish way. It's just it would never really be pointed at me. I don't think. Or it would be so pointed at you or everyone that that in itself would put you off. Yeah, but I know what you mean. The idea of no one wants to feel they're being marketed at, do they? The success of marketing is that, that you don't know it's happening. But also the success of marketing is completely founded on there being two very distinguished genders, or it has been up to a certain point, up till relatively recently. If you want to sell something, you you kind of isolate your your market and then you hammer it home. So you know, as long as gender is something that can be really easily defined as a binary, it's the Yorkie Bar schools of school of advertising. Well, I think this is what this is sort of what I ended up thinking of towards the end of um, reading this was that if there's a, a like a younger generation in my kind of uh, limited experience of uh, sort of teenagers and, and, and people of that age, like their attitude to gender is incredibly different to what, like my attitude to gender when I was growing up. So I wonder if this will be something that sort of won't be the case in the future in the same way because we won't have that sort of marketing but maybe I don't know maybe it will stay it's it's sort of interesting because my daughter's 11 and she I would say is not bothered by binaries of gender very much at all um and and would respond very badly to a sort of Yorkie bar advertising and yet all the books she reads are by women all of them Mm. and she's got a pretty free hand to read whatever she wants to read you know it's not like we're for putting books in her hand necessarily, but I would say the vast majority of books she reads are, are Jacqueline Wilson, or you know, there's a, and they are look they look they look like books for girls. So it's mm. clearly that marketing is still going on, and mm. maybe the idea that sort of binary is dissolving is very on trend, but that's a trend that maybe yes, but whether it really yeah is. exactly, and whether in the in the world of a of a bookshop in Chichester it has any bearing yeah. on that at all, then I, I suspect it probably doesn't, does it yet? No. I mean, I don't. I, I think these questions are always, I mean, I'm always interested in this because I feel like I've always read more women than male authors. And I find that I find a lot of women who say they sort of came to women writers later in life, particularly after studying a lot of men, but that's never really been the case for me. I've always found myself gravitating more towards women writers. Um, and I don't know if that's something to do with, there's something about their point of view that I find more 
I don't know, like relatable or whether it's just that I found good writers and I stick with them. I, I mean, I, I don't know the answer to this, but I think I, I always sort of want to be able to get to the bottom of it and I can't. But it, it strikes me that, that, that also with something like painting, there really was a lack of opportunity for female painters 200 years ago, 300 years ago. But fiction, you know, if you were to do the top 10 Victorian novels, more than five of them would be written by women, you would think. So there has at least been a canon of female writers that's been very well established for a very long time, which isn't necessarily true in other art forms, I don't think. No, that's right. So there's always been, I mean, I think, and I, this is definitely what you, you get the picture from from Taylor's book, that women have been reading novels for a very long time and they will continue to do so. Um and I, I don't know, I suppose the very fact that Pride and Prejudice of Jane Eyre are the ones that come up again and again as her, her writer, um, sorry, of her questioner, questionees, yeah, questionees' um, favourite novels just shows that these are not all people who are reading very contemporary um, kind of, you know, mark, marketed books as well. Well, it's fascinating uh, uh, stuff, Lucy. What a great pleasure to talk to you about. And uh, male listeners to this podcast should go out and read a novel. That's what we're saying, really. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Preferably one with some kind of pastel yeah, colour. Well, actually, colour, not right? go out, stay in. Yeah, trend. stay in. Sorry, stay in and read a novel. The new normal. Staying, stay. Yeah. Get delivered to you a, a pastel novel. Lucy, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. That's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Lucy Scholes and Michael Keynes. Please make sure you're subscribing to the TLS. We're still delivering every week in the paper and online, as well as our Shakespeare Fest this week. Look at rationing. Yeah, we did that once. And we got Jonathan Lynn of Yes Minister fame to give us a bit of his latest sequel to that brilliant show. Hooray for that. Next week, we do some politics and economics, but we'll find some other fun stuff as well. Make sure you're looking after yourselves as much as you can. Until next time, from Thea and from me, goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.